You're listening to Two for Tea. I'm your host, Iona Italia, and I'm assisted behind the scenes by my sound engineer, Justin Ward. This is a podcast about politics, society, science, and art, and about how everyone is wrong apart from us. I hope to provide a forum for calm, reasonable voices from across the political spectrum and counter the current atmosphere of frenzied partisanship and hysteria. Welcome to the conversation. Hello, everyone. My guest today is David Fuller. David is a filmmaker and journalist who worked at Channel 4 and the BBC for many years um, before founding the new media channel Rebel Wisdom in 2018. And um, I'm going to be talking to um, David today about the anti-vax movement with relation to the COVID vaccinations and also the um, the championing of the, the medicine ivermectin as a prophylactic against COVID to be taken in lieu of getting vaccinated. Um, and probably also about Brett and former guest of this podcast, Heather, Heather Hyings, Brett Weinstein and former guest of this podcast, Heather Hyings, um, involvement with that, um, possibly. And, um, David recently wrote an article for Ario magazine called On Brett Weinstein, Alternative Media, Ivermectin and Vaccine Related Controversies. I will link to that. And, um, there are a number of films on the Rebel Wisdom channel. If you search under vaccines um, and ivermectin, you will find um, a, a number of interviews um, that, um, that David has conducted on this topic, um, including one with me where we talk about the, um, the responsibilities of people with uh, who work in independent journalism with regard to this topic, how to balance our, our, um, our responsibilities to, to uphold free speech with our responsibility not to, not to allow misin, not to disseminate misinformation unchallenged. Welcome, David. Hello, Anna. Good to see you. Well, not see you. Good to hear you again. Thank you. Lovely to hear you too. Could we talk about how? When did you first um, become aware of the opposition to the COVID vaccines, um, and um, yes, why why you became involved in covering this topic so thoroughly? So yeah, I think a good place to start is it was interesting in your intro you you used the word anti-vax right at the beginning, and I know from having done these these films and having experienced quite a lot of the arguments on Twitter and the response is that as soon as people hear someone say those words, there's quite strong defense systems that say, well, we're not anti-vax, we're just anti-these vaccines. So there's a, I've been trying carefully to, to avoid that kind of language just because it creates this kind of immune reaction among people um, and trying to differentiate between people who, are, who I think understandably have concerns about novel vaccines produced under pressure of a pandemic, uh, long-term safety concerns and all of that, which you can completely understand why people would have those concerns. And I think there is an anti-vaccine movement. There has been an anti-vaccine movement, anti-vaccine activists for a very long time, which is something kind of different, but obviously the two things are quite interrelated at the same time. And my, my interest in this, I guess, I mean, I'm a journalist who's been working in a newsroom for quite a long time. So I was sort of aware of and following the, the, the thread of the pandemic quite closely, but I wasn't really covering up Rebel Wisdom. That's not really what Rebel Wisdom has been doing in the past. I've really been kind of looking at more big picture topics, uh, a lot of sort of bigger questions about sense making, how we make sense of the world. And it wasn't until Brett and Heather featured some of these arguments on their podcast, the Dark Horse podcast, that I felt compelled ethically to look into them because we have a huge overlap of our audience with their audience. And suddenly I was seeing, I think generally speaking, I've been interested in heterodox ideas and the intellectual dark web originally started making films about Jordan Peterson. And I've seen over time 
a big overlap and an increasing conspiratorial tone to a lot of the content and a lot of the the people in this ecosystem of which I'm part of that ecosystem as well along along with Brett and Heather and I my initial sense was that I and as I started looking into some of the claims and some of the people that Brett and Heather had featured on their podcast I became increasingly concerned um, a lot of their claims didn't seem to add up a lot of them seemed very shrill uh, they featured people like Steve Kirsch who seems entirely not credible as a source you read his he wrote this large document a kind of google document that just pulled together all of these claims about the the vaccines and on the face of it lots of the claims and that just didn't make any sense so the, the initial impetus was a sense of moral and ethical responsibility to look into it and also the sense that if if Brett and Heather were, for example, featured in the New York Times or in any of the more legacy media platforms, then it would be very easy for their audience to say, well, this is just an MSM smear. This is clearly the the MSM out to destroy Brett and Heather and we trust them. And so a sort of sense of responsibility of I can look into this as someone, as a kind of insider. And I, I also, and I feel, it feels slightly unfortunate that it has that personal touch. And I've tried it, certainly over the last week or so since I brought out my last film, which was called The Final Word, I'm trying more to to, to push the conversation on to the specific claims around vaccines about ivermectin and not, not really concentrating on Heather and Brett's decision to uh, platform or to boost those claims, although I think they are very, very significant decisions on their part to have done that. And I have wanted to engage in a dialogue with Brett and Heather about this for, for some time and I've asked them on multiple occasions for to have that dialogue so we could actually make sense of them together and they've for whatever reason I don't quite know why they've refused to be involved in that conversation and they've also refused to to feature anyone on their show who has a contrary perspective as well and as someone whose main focus is how we arrive at truth together and the problem of sense making and how difficult it is to make sense outside the institutions. This is clearly an amazing case study for that. But also, I yeah, I, I feel a certain kind of obligation to look into it, and also a sense of um, this really how I see Brett and Heather doing what they've been doing. That I don't think that's how you come to truth. And I think on matters this important, this significant, I don't think it's enough just to say, well, we're just putting the counterpoint. And we don't need to ask, I guess, any tough questions because you, we get enough of that in the mainstream media. I just don't believe that's sufficient because the, the nature of the internet means that Britain have a, have a captive audience who they have a huge amount of credibility with. Like their, their backstory is, is one that gives them a huge amount of credibility. And I think that requires a level of interrogation of their own beliefs and interrogation of their guest beliefs that I'm not seeing. So that was my... Um, yeah, that, that was my initial um, interest in the topic. But obviously, I, I've tried for it not to be personal, it, even though dealing with that personal dimension has been incredibly difficult. And I, I've tried to ensure that I, um, yeah, juggling this sort of sense of loyalty to people who I consider friends together with my obligation to look into the truth. Um has been very, very tricky and difficult to, to manage. But it's, um, yeah, it, it's something I felt obliga obligated to do. Mm. I, I do want to move on to the specific scientific claims and your investigation of that and away from the, um, uh, away from the kind um, the discussion of Brett and Heather. But I did see that you interviewed um, Eric Weinstein um, about this on your, on Rebel Wisdom. Yes. And um, I haven't actually watched that video, and I was curious as to his uh, take on this uh, as Brett's brother. So his take is, I would summarize as saying that he feels that Brett is being scapegoated for trying to have a conversation that no one else wants to have, and that most of the problems are upstream of Brett or yeah, upstream of Brett, that actually we're in an environment where there is very little leadership being taken by many of the people in positions of power. And there is 
yeah, the, the, the breath is effectively kind of downstream from that. He also quite clearly, he's vaccinated and he also, Eric, Eric, Eric is. is vaccinated. Yes. And mm-hmm. he also uh, said that he didn't, he didn't li- like the, the way the bet was structured on the ivermectin question. Um, and has sort of frequently said that he doesn't really know what to make of it. So the bet so I, was I, structured. Sorry, what do you mean? The bet was structured that he that he doesn't think that it would it was smart of Brett to kind of double down and put all of his chips on ivermectin, basically. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think Eric is also in a very very difficult position because of his relationship with Brett. But I think it was a very honest interview that he gave, and I think he he tried to express the central point that he was making the reason that I wanted to talk to him was to pull apart the question of heterodox does not mean contrarian and heterodox can lead you to a consensus position as easily as it can lead you to an alternative position because the way the debate is happening online is that there's a lot of people who were attracted to the heterodox sphere who are actually reactive contrarians they just want an excuse to think that the man is lying to you. You can't trust the authorities, and that's effectively the kind of the problem. Is that we've got a kind of mix of genuine, as I put it in my film, we've got sort of genuine first principles thinkers who um, have recognised problems with the consensus positions in many areas, but then you also have a lot of people who are reactive contrarians and are just looking for reasons to kind of feed their confirmation bias that they're being lied to at all times by all institutions and that's um especially on youtube there's a lot of there's a lot of that going on and it's not yeah it's 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 not very healthy um as eric said you're basically if you're just you're still under the control of the mainstream if you are basically looking at what the mainstream says and just putting a minor side in front of it that's not independent thinking so mm-hmm. so that was the main topic of the of the conversation um with with Eric, and I think that's why he 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 also said that he believes that uh, that the companies or or the authorities are not telling the full truth. But he still made the choice to get vaccinated, and he said that a lot of people are unable to make that like they may have that first realization, but they can't then go that second step and make their own decision about vaccination, even though they know that there are these incentive structures that lead to kind of capture of the medical authorities or there may be sort of warping factors and incentive structures that that lead you not to trust the consensus so i think his his message was probably one of the few that would reach the sort of more vaccine skeptical types which is which is and i've actually seen more than one person has messaged me to say that they've been vaccinated after hearing that conversation mm, mm, yes i mean i think that there has been so much um, um, mismanagement of things from the point of view, from the mainstream media and also from the health authorities um, in in many, many ways. First of all, it's very jarring to me to say hear people still saying online that uh, that if you get vaccinated, therefore we can, um, if enough people are vaccinated, we can end all restrictions. That seems highly unlikely to happen at the moment. And also that uh, people who are anti-mask just need to get vaccinated, then they'll be able to give up their masks. Mm. Um, it's still, it's, you know, it's, it's still um, mandatory to mask on public transport, on in Ubers, a lot of supermarkets and other um, uh, companies are still requiring their their specific customers to mask uh yeah. masking has not gone away and it seems not unlikely that if case numbers continue to rise we will be uh will be required to mask up in all public places again mm. um or even um or even have uh, lockdowns of some kind um or other other major restrictions and that's with a largely vaccinated population and with no differences being made between people who are fully vaccinated and people who are not mm. um i mean we also can't you know i uh, we can't uh, travel to most places abroad whether or not we've been fully vaccinated and in order to travel back even from the the 
uh, countries which we are allowed to travel to in most cases. This is a bit complicated, so I am generalizing a bit here, but we have to have negative, several negative COVID tests before and afterwards at, you know, 50 pounds a pop. They're not inexpensive. And that's for people who are fully vaccinated. So I also find that there's a kind of disingenuousness in this thing of you don't like masks, just get vaccinated. Um, Because getting vaccinated will not necessarily stop you from having to wear masks, Mm. at least in the short term. And in the longer term, who knows? Also, uh, there's a lot of conflicting information out there about how effective the vaccines have proven to be. Mm. So I think this is a separate question from risk, from whether or not they're risky. Um, The other question is... um, how effective are there? And there seems to be a very wide range of opinions on that from the kind of Israeli government's opinion that six months after after vaccination, you have no more protection than a completely unvaccinated person mm. to the kind of, well, I saw Razib Khan, who's another heterodox thinker, uh, but who is very much a COVID hawk and a pro-vaccine uh, person, he has been uh, sharing a lot of very telling kind of graphs, which show case numbers rising and rising, but hospitalizations and deaths remaining completely flat, which does suggest that the vaccines are being very effective mm. because those enough people have been vaccinated now that most of those hospitalizations are among the vaccinated, but the per- percentage the numbers are way, way lower than we would expect from the case numbers, which means that, mm. which implies to me that vaccines are making it less of a big deal to get COVID. Um, but it's, it's, you know, the whole, the information has been very mismanaged. It's also, um, you know, I just took an Uber today and um, the driver wasn't wearing a mask and didn't need me to wear a mask, but she was spraying and cleaning the entire car before I got in and she wouldn't let me get in without putting on hand sanitizer. Mm. Something has gone wrong with the messaging there. Um, and I blame the government and the media for continually saying, wash your, ha- <laughs> wash your hands mm-hmm. um, to prevent COVID. So, okay, sorry, that was a very long rant, but... Um, uh, and it's a, it's a little bit, all of that, however, is a bit irrelevant to the question of the safety of the vaccines. Um, so maybe we can, we can start there. What kinds of people are talking about the vaccines as unsafe? What evidence are they giving? And why do you think that evidence is not strong? And um, anything that you want to, uh, any papers or other stuff that you want to add, me to add in the show notes we can we can also add to back up the back up your views yeah so i would probably recommend that people check out the the long investigation that i put together that's on medium at the moment uh, that was the companion piece to the piece that we published in aereo and oh yeah i'll link to that yes and also a film that i recorded with yuri dagin who was the one of the researchers on the lab leak hypothesis. He was a, he was featured on Brett's podcast about the lab leak hypothesis. And then he's a medical, um, I think a drug develop. he's in drug development and got more and more concerned about what he was hearing from Brett related to vaccines and ivermectin. And then he, he sort of tried to liaise behind the scenes for some time, didn't really get very far. And then eventually wrote a piece for Quillette that I think was, was not, a particularly convincing piece, but then he also put together a presentation that I featured on Rebel Wisdom, where he went through in much more detail what the the problems was with the claims. And th- there's various claims. I mean, the the ivermectin story I think has has fallen apart in real time. Really, in the last month that I've been looking at it, it's gone from the narrative that was being pushed at the beginning by people like Pierre Corey, who is sort of the main advocate, and Tess Laurie, the two main advocates for ivermectin, these doctors who were claiming that it was proven to work. There was 
no doubt about its efficacy as both a treatment and a prevention for getting COVID. And the only reason that anyone could have for saying that it didn't work was that they were in some way captured or dishonest. And that that was effectively their, their, their perspective. Whereas the medical consensus from the doctors and the medical people I was speaking to was, no, there may be some benefit to ivermectin. But if you look at the data, it's extremely low quality. It's the, the studies that have been done have, are not very, very well done. Um, we wouldn't recommend any other drug based on this. And it's clearly the case now, after a month or so, that that latter perspective is correct. So the the studies that have been made of, of ivermectin, they, the latest understanding by the researchers who've been looking into those studies, that fully a third of those studies were not just shoddy, not just badly done, but may not have happened at all, may have been outright fraud. Like they've uncovered a level of fraud in the ivermectin literature that is quite staggering to behold. I'd really recommend people check out the epidemiologist Gideon Myrovitz Katz, who is based in Australia. He, I first started talking to him when he just published a couple of pieces about ivermectin, and he was largely doing this completely in his own time. Um, I think he ended up having a few more people to help him, but it was largely a solo operation, and he was just completely gobsmacked and horrified by what he un- what he unearthed, because there's been a huge amount of like ivermectin has become this cause celebre. It's been recommended, it's been prescribed for so many people around the world, and he just thinks it's a complete failure of medicine that the the problems in the data were not picked up earlier. So the the ivermectin story has. Yeah, the, the the case for it is is falling apart fast. The case for it as a prophylactic, as a prevention, I think is was always extremely dubious and is now yeah, it's the most consequential claim because it's the claim that says, well, you could use this drug instead of vaccines. So it was always a much more contentious claim than saying, well, it could work as a treatment, because whether it works as a treatment or not, I mean, if you've got COVID tomorrow and someone had a pill of ivermectin and you know that it's largely a safe drug would you take it you, maybe i think most people probably would but to say oh you take this and it stops you getting covid was a far more consequential claim it was made brett actually said on his podcast the data seems to show that it's a hundred percent effective as a prophylactic and that was based on a study that now pretty much everyone realizes didn't happen so the level of yeah the the level of um just outright shoddiness in the ivermectin case has been astonishing to witness. And it has, it's honestly felt a bit like a cult. Like it, one of, one of the central themes that we have on rebel wisdom is how a lot of the certainty that we used to attach to religion has now been, is now manifesting in weird and wonderful ways. And it, it manifests itself as politics, like the woke woke us down on one side and Trump is down on the other side. We, we bring this level of kind of, religious certainty and we see this kind of religious fervor breaking out everywhere the the kind of QAnon shaman in the capital is a perfect example of like the return of this kind of irrational religious fervor and we've just had the same thing with ivermectin which is pretty astonishing and i what's astonishing for me is like the media has still missed this story almost completely they're now there's now some attention on um oh look this horse deworming drug and every and generally it's sort of more of the same sneering at trump supporters that we've got kind of we've had for the last sort of five years or so and i don't think that's very helpful and it also misses the story which is this is a cult like we we we've had effectively a cult based around this drug in the middle of a pandemic and it's an astonishing thing it's an astonishing thing to see and yeah, so the ivermectin is its own separate story, and then you you have the vaccine claims as well, which are extremely dubious. And I, again, I recommend looking at the, the Yuri Dagan piece in particular. But what what is peculiar and particularly concerning is how those two cases have merged together. We we put out a film recently with Eric Osgood, who used to be part of Pierre Corey, the main advocate for ivermectin's organization, the FLCCC. And he left because he was so concerned about how the message for ivermectin was being taken over by anti-vaccine activists. And he's been very unhappy about that. And he actually, it was a very 
moving interview because he broke down in tears in the middle of it where he was apologizing for any role that he'd played in the turn that things had taken. And it is bizarre and odd and concerning that the anti-vaccine movement has moved into the ivermectin story and now there's there's a very large Venn diagram of overlap between the anti-vaccine activists and the ivermectin activists and that never ha- that didn't have to be the case there's there's no obvious reason why the case for ivermectin which still may turn out to work to some degree as a treatment maybe not as a prophylactic but there was no reason why that couldn't be have been used as an adjunct to vaccines, but for some reason, partly because the anti-vaccine movement is good at appropriating causes for itself and infiltrating various movements, those two things have become intertwined with each other. And that that's a big red flag for anyone um, looking at how the conversation around ivermectin has developed, I think. How, um, how did people become interested in ivermectin in the first place? I mean, I gather it's a uh, a vermicidal drug. Um, yes, and, it's an antiparasitic. Right. So, um, why would why would that work against a, a virus? It's a good question. There, they, there have been studies that found antiviral properties for ivermectin in large concentrations, larger than you can find in the body, but. If you look at the way that it works against parasites, it really is not obvious why its mechanism of action would work against viruses. So it's it's highly unclear why it would work at all, which is why there's a lot of skepticism from the kind of me- medical consensus about ivermectin in the first place. Um, yeah, so it's... It, it's it's sort of bizarre, and it it does seem that the bigger the trial is, and the more reputable the trial is, the lower the effect that is found for ivermectin having a positive effect. So, yeah, it's I, I think we'll look back and see this as a very peculiar movement at a very peculiar time. Um, but you know, ha, ha, um, do you know how it actually started? Um, who was the first person to propose this and? And what they were, uh, what their motivation was? Well, it was picked up. I mean, it is a, so there's been a lot of interest in many different off patent or kind of generic drugs. So obviously, hydroxychloroquine was the main one um, last year that Trump said that he was taking. And actually, the the, the best science we have now on on hydroxychloroquine is that it was a net. it had a net negative effect. Not only was it not effective against against COVID, actually people poisoned themselves and people died as a result of taking hydroxychloroquine. So, but there has been, there's also been interest in various other drugs like fluvoxamine, I think has recently been shown to work quite well or has had an effect. And ivermectin was one of those drugs that was being being kind of brought as a, as a possible treatment. The, the peculiar thing is why it became singled out and it, it got this narrative around it. I think I think the Steelman case is that there has been a singular fo- focus on vaccines at the cost of some of these other treatments. I think that is certainly the case. And I think if you were to limit your critique of um, the response to the pandemic to this is what happens when you have a centralized response to a, compli- a, a really complex problem, you get an over over focused on singular narratives you neglect many of the other things for example um, good immune systems good health like generic drugs that may have some effect small molecule drugs i think that's the steel man version of the case that is being made and i think could have been made by brett and heather on the dark horse quite well but it doesn't have the same narrative punch as getting Pierre Corey onto a podcast and talking about this being the crime of the century, which is what they called the the episode with Pierre Corey and claimed that effectively the silence around ivermectin was costing lives and it was being deliberately suppressed by um, the health authorities in cahoots with the vaccine manufacturers because they wanted to push people towards using vaccines. And like this, 
this is this is my one of my central issues is people people just don't seem aware of how powerful those narratives are and how wary we should be about using them they seem and brett in particular seems very very focused on how powerful or how much danger there is coming from the capture of the authorities or the the warping factors of big pharma and the warping factors of the financial incentives and i i fully support him on that we've put out films with him making those observations and i i, I agree i have much more sympathy for those views than than some do uh, those are the perspectives that i think both Brett and Eric um, articulate really, really well. But there seems to be almost no acknowledgement of the narrative capture on the other side, like how powerful those narratives are of lone doctors acting heroically against big pharma and, oh, this is being the, the power of claiming censorship and of things being suppressed. And obviously there, some of Brett's films did get censored, but my view was that they were being censored because he he crossed the line between discussing certain ideas and actively advocating for certain courses of action which have serious long-term medical implications and on that Pierre Corey interview for example they were saying that ivermectin could work 100% effectively as a prophylactic based on a study that we now know probably didn't happen like mm-hmm. I, and i think people i know especially on youtube people have a kind of very free speech absolutist perspective, which I, to be honest, find slightly naive, especially when it is related to medical claims. And I just sort of talk about this kind of thought experiment of, would you go as far as to say that we should do away with any regulations of what claims can be made on med- medicine bo- bottles or in pharmacies? Should anyone be allowed to say anything as a cure for anything? Like, we obviously know that that's not true. Like, of course not. There should be some regulations of what claims can be made on about medicines. So why would you not then apply that also to podcasts or YouTube films where a lot of people are getting their medical information from, from people like Pierre Corey, like Brett Weinstein, who have a lot of credibility among, among certain areas. Like they, These are clearly consequential claims. And I think saying, oh, there should be, never be any censorship around this, I think is, is really naive. And it shows that people haven't really wrestled with the, 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 the question to any level or depth. Um, I think that pushing back against that a bit, I think that fraud is one of the usual exceptions that uh, even free speech absolutists make um, because fraud is not an expression of opinion. Mm. Um, it's a specifically and deliberately mendacious claim. Um, but that claim that was being made about the Carvalho study, for example, was not at that time fraudulent or mendacious. They didn't know that that didn't happen, mm-hmm. but they still made strong claims about ivermectin's 100% effectiveness as a prophylactic, which were not, which, like, it, that, that, that was probably a gray area. Like, it was not a mendacious claim, but it also was not supported by the science at the time and has since proven to be incorrect based on the fact that that study didn't even happen. Yeah, I I mean, I think the question is, um, it's, I I don't know that I trust a YouTube algorithm or somebody employed by YouTube to make medical decisions. Mm. um, Yes. Or decisions about what is good science and what isn't good science. Yes. Um, So I... This is why for most of us, we have, we trust medical expertise. Um, and, you know, if, if I, if I want to know what is an effective treatment, I will mm. ask my GP. Um, but I wouldn't ask an employee at YouTube. So why therefore should I allow an employee at YouTube to decide what's the correct science or not, somebody who probably doesn't even have a science background at all, if it's even a person rather than just an algorithm, um, looking at specific words and banning stuff on 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 the basis of those words. And I am a person who does think that quack should be, I mean, I personally think Gwyneth Mm. Paltrow should be in prison. Um, You know, I am a person who is very, very anti-quacks, and that is where my... Um, defensive free, one of the places where my defensive free speech will end. Um, if you are telling people to, to 
use homeopathy instead of getting vaccinated, which was happening ha- has been happening in India a lot, uh, or to use homeopathy instead of taking your cancer meds, which also happens in India a lot. Um, you know, I I I do think I think those people should be prosecuted um, because that is um, bullshit, and I uh, arguably. Unless they have some kind of mental illness, they know it's bullshit because they know what homeopathy is. It's taking a little flask of water and shaking it several times. Um, so I, um, however, um, I don't think uh, YouTube employees should be the ones to um, legislate that. No, I mean, and you will, I'm sure, be aware that they took down uh final piece about the dark horse and gave us a strike for medical misinformation even though we were the piece was debunking medical misinformation mm, yeah, so so yeah. the fact that youtube like i think youtube have demonstrated very very clearly that they are not equipped to make those decisions and and i I've, I've spoken to medical experts who are online doctors and they've said that this happens regularly and it's actually quite a well known it's quite well known that YouTube's health team is not up to scratch. They they really are struggling to to deal with stuff in the during COVID, and that's a hu- that's a huge problem. It's a, it's a huge problem. It's part of the same problem we've got with the big tech platforms eating um, the media because at least in previous times we had health editors, we had medical experts who've been with newspapers and for for kind of decades and there was decades worth of institutional knowledge in those organizations and now we've got a situation where these big tech platforms have swallowed the media landscape whole and they don't have any of the the institutional knowledge or ability to judge um that the yeah that the old structures did and that that's a huge problem yeah and i think we shouldn't forget um this is not to uh, let people in the heterodox landscape off the hook, because mm. I think these are completely separate questions. But we shouldn't forget how much of the scaremongering um, about vaccines came from national governments, um, you know, who who um, stopped vaccine rollouts on the basis of three people having blood clots. Yes. Um, so at the very time when we were all getting the AstraZeneca vaccine um it was it had been um a number of countries in europe were um refusing to use it um and even letting stocks expire and things i think because of fears that it would cause blood clots so um i don't think that the vaccine skepticism is has all been on the heterodox side no. or that the misinformation has all been on the heterodox side it's been a, a mess mm. Yes. And there does seem to be a big question mark now on uh, among the kind of orthodox side of things as to how effective the vaccines actually are. And um, that has not helped matters. Yes. And you're, you also get you also get this. But the thing that keeps coming up is people say, oh, well, the, the advice about masks earlier in the pandemic was was wrong. And um, there have been some major screw ups, I think. I think that the. the the lab leak situation, I think, rightly has led a lot of people to ask what on earth went on with that deliberate construction of a narrative that it was a conspiracy theory when it clearly wasn't. And I think that that has done a huge amount of damage to trust in the authorities, quite rightly, in many ways. But I do mm-hmm. think that there's a tendency where, and this happens as well with, with, with things like the New York Times or any of these big institutions, when they make like one or two errors made by a big institution is enough for them to be damned in the eyes of people looking to to attack them. Whereas they probably put out, I don't know how many stories did the New York Times put out a day? It must be a, a couple of hundred or more. And then one every now and again will be used as evidence that the New York Times is completely bankrupt. And the same thing, I think, with this mask issue. It's kind of, yes, it was wrong for them to 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 say that masks don't work when they what they actually meant was please don't buy up the masks because we need them for healthcare professionals but it's not 
the fact that that keeps coming up again and again and again as, a, as an example of, well, you absolutely can't trust anything that the medical establishment says is kind of ridiculous. And mm-hmm. and so I think there's, yeah, there's something, there's, there's a sort of weaponized argument on the heterodox side that I think oversteps the boundaries far too often and is is used to discredit any institution in a kind of in a in a pretty unfair way and i think it's often an unfair fight mm. i mean i'm i'm still very much pro vaccines i think they're all safe including astrazeneca and i think that they are i mean my intuition is they're safe and they are reasonably effective mm. um and are absolute best bet and i'm looking forward to getting my third shot booster Mm. um and actually i'd be quite happy to be given a shot of everything that's going right like i think those of us who've had az should be allowed to now get pfizer and moderna and johnson and johnson as well if we want and just pop everything in there um that is a a a personally how much faith i have in them Mm. um but uh, what's the um you know i don't have a background in microbiology or epidemiology clearly what's your best argument to people who say that now there's kind of news that the vaccines might not be so effective after all um and they themselves uh what what's your argument to someone who says well um i've already had covid so i may have some natural immunity from that um it seems like the vaccines are not as effective as they thought they were. And I personally think they're risky. Why should I? And I'm going to have to, I'm going to be asked to mask up and follow restrictions either way. Mm. So why should I get vaccinated? What what is your answer to that person? I, I, I don't really feel that I'm either equipped or I've tried to avoid those kind of questions. Like I've, in all of my Mm. pieces, I'm often framed um, as oh you're taking a pro vaccine stance and I, I I don't think I have I don't think I've I've said one way or another I mean I'm I'm interested in hearing I've said I my my principal criticism is that the specific arguments made by the specific people that um, that I've heard and that Brett ch- chose to boost I don't think make much sense and I think I've, mm-hmm. I've demonstrated especially in the medium article that they don't make sense and some of them I think are so catastrophically wrong that they should discredit the people making those arguments. And I mean, I am personally vaccinated. My, my sense is that um, the, the safety concerns for the vaccines are massively overblown. I think the idea that there is some vast conspiracy is quite clearly disproved by the speed at which the AstraZeneca vaccine and the Johnson and Johnson vaccine were withdrawn after only a small number of cases of blood clots. And I think those decisions have probably had more impact on creating vaccine hesitancy than any other in decisions made during the pandemic. Um, but at the same time, I, 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 I don't want to be in a position of, of advocating one way or the other. I think it's it, I, what I want is for people to make, I, I would probably advise people to, 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 get vaccinated but i would say look at things yourself and don't make decisions based on misinformation and check out like if you're going to make your decision yourself then make it based on as accurate information as you can but that would be what i would say i mean personally i do think that there is a question as to whether you do need to be vaccinated if you've already had covid like that that for me seems like a very valid question to ask and i think the question of what the risk benefit ratio is for children being vaccinated is another is another valid question to ask i do think that there are valid questions that are that should be able to be discussed openly and are being kind of caught up in this sort of social shaming around oh that's an anti-vaccine perspective or that's an anti-vaccine point counterpoint and i think the way the com the, the most important thing for me is it's the way the conversation happens and I think this sense of either people feeling judged or um, somehow condescended to because of their concerns is a catastrophic error and has to change because mm. it it doesn't work. I mean, if you know anything about human psychology, it obviously won't work. But it's also 
it's not how public health can work now in the internet age. And I think people, this assumption that only stupid people are vaccine hesitant or have concerns about the vaccines is, is deeply, it's deeply wrong because these are complicated questions. Like the people who have, who have concerns about the vaccines are reading stuff about spike protein. They're reading stuff about the, um, they're reading extremely complex. These are very complex arguments. And I think the problem we have, what I've called the uncanny valley between the mainstream and the alternative is that we have an alternative that will not challenge these claims because they have no incentive to. So they just get on these these kind of controversial figures and just agree the hell out of them, which was my problem with, with Brett's attitude. And then the, the mainstream is alternately refusing to engage with the claims at all for fear of a kind of false equivalence of um, these kind of fringe characters. Or when they do, they just kind of double down on medical consensus and don't engage with the substance of the of the criticisms. Or when they do, it's in a very condescending kind of fact-checking way where from the very beginning of any article, the journalist is more interested in signaling to other journalists that they're obviously not uh, anti-vaccine and it just comes across as this kind of very condescending perspective. And I think mm, that's yeah. something that just just has to change because it, it, it doesn't work. And I, I think it's very, yeah, it's dismissive towards people and it, it just further fragments us from each other. Yeah, I mean, I think that, so the discourse about the, the U-turn on masks, even though that was, you know, more, it was, more than a year ago, uh, yeah, it was sort of eighteen months since since really the um, they've been advocating masks. I guess more than a year ago that the U turn mm. happened, um, and I think that one of the reasons why people can't let it go is because that was the moment at which the mainstream medical authorities relinquished not their authority, at least not in my eyes, at least not their credibility, um, but the credibility of their, the kind of reasonableness of the condescending tone that they take, mm. because they took an even more condescending tone when they were telling us not to wear masks. Mm. Um, and I remember that there being articles on the psychology of people who are wearing masks and how it was like comforting to wear masks. And mm. it was because we were sort of idiots and we couldn't understand what might be an effective preventative me measure and what wouldn't be. Mm. And so we grasped at masks because they were symbolic or whatever. And I, I remember one person telling me it was something to do with an infantilization and a kind of unresolved Freudianism and who knows mm. what. And all of that, I mean, a lot of that was coming from the mainstream, from doctors, epidemiologists, health spokespeople. Um, and it all proved to be bollocks mm. and was then promptly memory hold. Now, I I think it's very reasonable for for people to have changed their minds as a result of new information. Um, and I, but however, what you can't do is then just re return and continue with the same tone of condescension. Mm. Um, it was already not a very wise way of proceeding to begin with. And now it just seems like, um, it, it just seems completely unjustified. And I, I do feel having had a kind of a little bit of a sort of um, heterodox take on uh, certain things myself, well, circumcision in particular, and U.S. Uh, routine neonatal circumcision in the U.S., um, I think, okay, so you're telling people they're idiots. I mean, I'm pro-vaccines, but you're telling people they're idiots. Uh, you mean you, the same people who told us that if you got circumcised, you wouldn't be able to get HIV. Mm. You're the same people telling us we're idiots and you're clever. Um, I just, I don't buy it. You know, you yes. have to, you have to treat people with a bit more respect. Yeah. Yeah. I think this is something that Eric made a really good point about in that interview where he, he said that the entire public health 
messaging apparatus would have to be looked at in the wake of this. And I think he's right. I think there is a there's a there's a level of like they haven't adapted. I think I think this there's so many areas that the pandemic has basically shown up the stresses of the system and has been a kind of stress test that I think many of our institutions have failed. And that's another area where you can see how the public health messaging was built for a pre-internet age and was another form of sort of gatekeeping. We just come up with one simple message and we put it forward and we, and we just kind of, that's, that's how it works. And vaccines are very much in this strange place between science, medicine, and public health. And the public health takes precedence over all of the other questions. So therefore public health is, is about finding one particular course of direction and making sure everyone is pointing in that, in that direction and just going for it. And I think that doesn't work. There has to be much more nuanced messaging and much more acknowledgement. Um, and, I, and I think also when there's an incomplete narrative, it leads people to find that's where conspiracy theories thrive is when there's the sense that people have that they're not being told the full story. And I think mm-hmm. vaccines is a perfect example where I think the true story, like the story that is being told is vaccines are perfectly safe. If you don't take vaccines, then you're an idiot. You're, a, you're an anti-vaxxer. The true story would be something like vaccines are, are very safe, but they are medical interventions. There are uh, some known side effects to them, but our judgment is that that's very, very low. And the, the benefit hugely outweighs any potential risk from the vaccines, of which there are some, but they are relatively minor. And I think the gap between that first narrative and the second is where you get the more lurid claims coming from. And, mm-hmm. and I think that's, that you can see that everywhere. Like, I think that, that is what fuels conspiratorial thinking in so many different areas. Um, mm-hmm. It's that sense that people are not being told the full story, and then they fill in the gaps, often in, in slightly exaggerated and over-enthusiastic ways. Yeah, there's also been a very annoying, I feel, um, reluctance to um, concede that there are trade-offs. Mm. Um, it, you know, that I I think that early on in the pandemic, there was a bit more of a willingness to concede trade-offs. And, and now at this point, when I, ironically, when a much lower percentage of cases are leading to hospitalization and death, etc., so things are less severe on the COVID front, um, suddenly the kind of willingness on, on many people's part in the mainstream to acknowledge trade-offs has just disappeared. Mm. Um, and, um, so, um, uh, you know, just a kind of ludicrous, um, example was, um, someone was complaining publicly about, uh, how much she dislikes wearing a mask to have to teach uh, mm. yoga and exercise classes. And let it be said, a fully vaccinated person to a class full of other fully vaccinated people. Yeah. Because being vaccinated is actually a, um, a requirement for them taking the class. So, um, and instead of, uh, um, instead of kind of saying, well, that sucks, but at, at this stage, we're, we're not certain that the vaccines are being completely effective and we want to get the numbers down very low before we let go of masking completely. It was, it's just a piece of cloth. It's no inconvenience whatsoever. Really doesn't matter. Um, and if you did, if you gave the class unmasked, hundreds of thousands of people would die as a result of your selfishness, which was just an extraordinary, I mean, there's an extraordinary mixture of kind of hyperbole and just lack of sense. Mm. Um, and I think that acknowledging the, the, that the trade-offs are bad, it goes a long way to get it winning over people's goodwill. Um, I mean, I am a, I'm kind of hawkish and I'm still wearing my mask um, and things, but I absolutely hate it. And nothing gets my back up more than people saying that it's not a big deal putting the mask on. Yes. It is a big deal. I can't see properly because I'm mm. wear very focus, you know. Yeah. Um, uh, but it's 
um, it may be worth it in some situations. Yes. Um, as on a precautionary principle, temporarily. But the sort of idea that it's such a, a a small deal that we should continue being masked kind of indefinitely, it just I I think it's just a crazy way of thinking and talking. Yes, I think the pandemic has also shown up very different attitudes towards risk and safety, like individually, obviously, but also culturally. I think what's happening in Australia now is quite astonishing. Um, if you look at like Australia has always had a tendency towards following the rules and kind of nanny statishness, which may surprise people who see Australians as being quite competent, but actually they're kind of the background as a kind of with the penal colony and um, a lot of other kind of cultural factors mean that they often overinterpret the rules. And I think that's really coming back to bite them right now. Um, I, I, I spent a bit of time in, um, Mexico, where there was a compulsory masking in public, and I found that extremely. Um, yeah, I, I, I don't. I, I've got that tendency. Like, I really don't like being told what to do. Like, I, I will not be told what to do. I think that's partly um, why I like being a journalist. But um, I think England has done pretty well generally because mm, we have mm. certainly in London, where where I live, like there's there's a People tend to wear masks when they go into shops, but there's no expectation that you wear them out and about. And I think if there had been any enforcement of, of mask mandates in public, I would feel very differently about the the situation. I think we've had a pretty common sense approach to it, which is yeah, why I can't I re- which is why I can't really understand the extreme lockdown skeptic um, anti uh, movements that there have been. Like that that for me is. Astonishing. I think you've seen people literally lose their minds over the course of the pandemic, the sort of Piers Corbynites and this sense mm-hmm. of, but you see it on Twitter where people are talking about as if we're in a dictatorship and any excuse can be found like, oh, vaccine passports, whatever it might be. It's like, I went to a festival last weekend. I went to another one mm-hmm. the weekend before. Like, it's, we're not living in a totalitarian dictatorship. Like, but I think I think I genuinely think people have lost their minds. I think that particular kind of anti-lockdown cohort seem to actively want the restrictions to give them a sense of meaning and a sense of something to push back against. Like those mm. those anti-lockdown protests in London have got steadily more and more extreme, freaky, and weird as time has gone by. And I, I think some people are, lo- are literally locked into a an oppositional mindset that they now cannot get out of. Mm. And I, I, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not kind of exaggerating. When I think it literally has sent some people mad. I think the, I think the, the combination of the, the pandemic and the lockdown and the sort of sense of the walls closing in in so many different ways have, have, yeah, has had some really, some effects that I think we'll be feeling for for years and years to come. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I completely agree. Um, that's my intuitive take as well. I've seen a lot of people going crazy on sort of both sides of the political divide. And it does feel... Yes. And of course, let's say let's say that's an incomplete picture because the other side of it is that you've got the zero COVID people on the other side. You've got some of the... Yeah. And they're probably more influential. They're probably more powerful in terms of the people advising government. So yeah, I, I shouldn't sort of leave it at that. I think there have been... Yeah, of course. But, but, what's, but what's striking is I think that the UK government has actually been pretty resistant to those messages. Like when, when we opened up in, in July, there were huge pressures on them not to. There was, a, mm-hmm. a, I think, 100 academics and scientists from around the world wrote an open letter saying that what Britain was planning to do was catastrophic, to open up with high case numbers and high vaccinations, and that we were basically creating a Petri dish for variants. And like it would have been – I'd like to – which I think pushes back at the idea that oh we're 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 in a, a totalitarian dictatorship et cetera et cetera and we're we're really not in the UK we really really are not yeah and it's, yeah it's 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 completely warped that people are still making those arguments I think and I I, I wonder about the motivations of people who are still making those arguments because there is a there is an audience that seems to like it but I just find it dishonest at this point yeah I mean most restrictions have ended. Um, only some masking restrictions, which um, kind of 
bother, bother me perhaps more than they do most people absolutely mm. hate masks. Um, but I think that, uh, you know, they, uh, the restrictions have mostly ended. Um, but some people seem to be, I think that the time during the restrictions, it was incredibly hard for a lot of people. I think that there were, uh, you know, an, uh, uh, some of my friends have really not recovered um, because there are a, a lot of people I, I, as, as people listening to this podcast probably know, I used to be a, um, a dance teacher, a professional dance teacher. And I have many people working in that and it's not, mm. you can't really effectively teach dance online. No. Um, it does not work well at all, especially not tango, which is, was my area. And in, uh, back in Argentina, there was no furlough. You know, many things have closed down and will not reopen. I don't know if the, the dance culture will recover. Mm. Um, and if it doesn't, we'll have lost something completely uniquely valuable. And, um, many of my friends are just in extremely dire states, uh, financially, mm. um, because, uh, they don't have any students. And these are not people who have a ton of other um, options. They're specialized in teaching dance. And they're living in a country which is, in any case, going through one one financial crisis after another, just bobbling along the bottom. It's not like they can just learn to code. Um, so I think it's been incredibly hard for many people. And even here in the UK, it's been hard for a lot of people who were dependent on uh, freelancers who are dependent on things that can't be done from home and where the support was very minor, if at all. And, and, um, since I know a lot of people in the arts, uh, for whom that's true. And it was very hard on many people who are living at home on their own, um, or living with people that they don't get on well with. Um, or people who, with whom they have very troubled relationships. So there were, um, there were an awful lot of, an awful lot of hardship went on as a result of the lockdown. Um, but nevertheless, the lockdowns are over and people, uh, at least some branch of people don't seem to have been able to somehow seem, seem to be acting as though they're not over. Mm. Yeah, I think there's some big shocks to the system and the concern that I think a lot of people have is that people are very fragile right now and it it's sort of it's it's after the, the, the emergency when people actually have feel the sort of freedom, for want of a better word, to kind of to to break down. Um yeah. that this is mm. I've got a friend mm. who's a chef who said that when everyone came back, he just realized he couldn't push people anywhere near probably even like 20% of how he was pushing them before and just felt like everyone's so fragile right now. And there's an article, I think um, Gary Hinsliff in the Guardian the other day was saying that there's this broad sense in most of the social care and NHS that people are really struggling and that there's a lot of people on the verge of burnout and they can't do it again. So I think that's a really real concern. Mm, mm, yeah. Is there anything that we haven't covered that you feel we, we should have covered or emphasized? Um, I don't think so. Um, and my, maybe just to, to return to the, the initial topic to, to kind of bookend the conversation and wrap up. Um, I could say that I, yeah, I'm, I'm not so, I mean, I, I probably will end up doing a couple more pieces about the, the, the wider issues raised by this, particularly the, the fact that YouTube took down our film. I want to find out why they did that. And I'm going to try and get an interview with, with YouTube to ask them. Um, and, and obviously I've, I've got some pretty good contacts and pretty good insights into some of these stories now that means I probably will follow them up in some way. But my real interest is the, the problem that I think will outlive the pandemic, which is how do we find truth 
in a world where we don't really trust our institutions to do it anymore, yet we don't have any functional institutions outside the mainstream and that that problem of finding truth together and that problem of losing a sense of shared reality is has been accelerated by the pandemic but was there before and will continue afterwards and that is the fundamental problem that we are going to have to wrestle with and somehow overcome um so that's that's where i'm wanting to take rebel wisdom's coverage of the situation after this thank you so much david thank you it's been a pleasure have a wonderful week everyone thank you so much for listening to two for tea your patronage helps to keep this podcast alive and flourishing your support means the world to me stay well stay happy and have a wonderful week